All right, good afternoon. Uh, open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We have made our way all the way to chapter 4. I trust the song we just sang that we really think about the words there. We'll never know just how much it cost. I think uh, as creatures, thinking about what it cost, the Creator, we don't actually have the categories to even understand that. And so that transition that was just so masterfully done for us here with that song, we never know how much it cost, so here I am to worship. Because I know that it's much more significant than I could even imagine. And so we, we celebrate today, we rejoice in the gospel of our Lord uh, Jesus. I'm celebrating, I'm rejoicing, uh, because today you came back. Uh, last week, uh, if you were here, First Peter chapter three, eighteen to twenty-two was quite a doozy, and uh, a lot of lot of interesting things in that passage. And so, you know, you preach a message like that, and you kind of are hoping people come back next week. And praise be to God, here we are, and uh, we're working our way through First Peter. We're in chapter four now, and I'm excited this this afternoon to give a, in essence, one of the things that. Uh, you recognize about being a Christian is that we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, our Savior. And today, Peter's going to give us a passage that talks about what it means to follow in the steps of Jesus. So read with me here as I read. Uh, you can look along. Chapter 4, 1 Peter, it says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We're actually going to break up the paragraph right there in verse 3, and then the next time we come together, Lord willing, in a few weeks, uh, then we'll pick it back up at verse 4. Let's, let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer as we think of verses 1 to 3. Father, thank you this afternoon that we have the opportunity to look into your word. I thank you for your word. It's a gift of your grace to us. Uh, you have made us, and now you've given to us a study, a, a document, a, a manual, a field guide, if we would, concerning how we ought to live and what we are to do in this life, especially as those who have been called out from the world, become members of the body of Christ. You've now called us to follow after your Son, and now here in this passage you're telling us how to do it. And so we're excited to hear it, and I ask that you would use your word for your people through your servant to accomplish your ends. It's all about you, Father, for you deserve all the praise and glory. And to help us today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll notice that there's actually one command in this particular passage. It comes right there in the first verse. Since, therefore, in light of the fact that Christ has suffered in the flesh, and then here's the command, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And I could uh, organize that another way and simply say, think like Jesus. This is what he's saying. You need, I need, we as believers need to have the mindset of Jesus. 
So think like Jesus. But the interesting thing about the passage is that Peter highlights for us that it's not merely that we need to think like Jesus, but that in fact we have to do so militarily. Why do I use military language? It's because Peter does. If you notice again in verse 1, since Christ suffered in the flesh, notice what he says, arm yourselves. He's using language here that's military-based. It's about preparedness for war. Get the, get the needed materials and be prepared for war is essentially what Peter's saying. And what's interesting to me is that Peter is addressing this from what I put on the slide here, a mental toughness standpoint. One of the things, and I think I mentioned a number of weeks ago here, one of the things I, I sort of enjoy looking at and, and doing a little bit of research on is the special forces of the United States military. I remember a number of years back, a, a gentleman who was uh, an evangelist, he, he was a preacher of the word, he would go around and, and preach the word in various churches. He had been a Green Beret, and so this was the special forces of the, of the army. And I was young enough to think, oh, who cares, that's, that's not that significant of a thing. So I went home later, and I looked up what it takes to become a Green Beret. And I discovered that I ought to have made some, you know, I ought to have given some respect to this guy. Because here's the interesting thing about the special forces of the military. It's not as though if you're the top echelon in the military that you automatically become the special forces. And it's not even really about physical ability, though, of course, you've got to, to some degree, be in some sort of physical shape in order to get this. So it's only the best of the military who even get a chance to try out for the special forces of the military. But do you know what distinguishes the individuals who succeed in the special forces and the individuals who, though physically capable of doing it, never do? It's what I have up on the screen. Mental toughness. It's an ability, not merely physical, but to actually prepare yourself mentally for the challenges that you're going to face. And if you, if you look at uh, the, the sorts of activities they go through in order to pass, uh, you'll find things like uh, being dumped, dunked in a swimming pool with your arms tied behind your back and your, your feet tied. And you're told you will not drown. We'll make sure you don't drown. But you've got to stay down there. <laughs> and you've got to trust everyone else. It's, it's, it's a mental challenge more than it is a physical challenge. Now, why do I spend so much time discussing the special forces? Uh, it's because I think when it comes to uh, what God is calling us to here in 1 Peter chapter 4, it's not so much a physical battle that we're called to engage in. And a lot of us say amen to that. <laughs> it's a mental battle. You see, what he says here is arm yourselves and then arm yourselves with what? The weapon is a way of thinking. And I'm telling you right now that one of the most powerful weapons you have is the ability to control your thinking is to organize your thoughts in the face of difficult circumstances and to know how to appropriately respond. Mental toughness is central. And here in 1 Peter, 
Peter says, listen, you as a believer need to arm yourself. You, you need to be mentally prepared with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. Now, a couple of questions might, might pop up to us as we think about that. And the first one is, uh, maybe the question is, well, why should I think like Jesus? I'm not an incarnate. I, you know, I'm not the son of God incarnate. How, why should the thinking of Jesus be particularly effective in my life? And I think there are a couple of good answers to this. And the first one I've got up on the screen there first, because he became enfleshed in order to leave us an example. He actually took on flesh so that he would give us an example. You remember 1 Peter 2.21, a passage we looked at a little bit earlier. Peter actually explicitly tells us this. He says, for you were called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you, and then notice this next phrase, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Examples are rather significant. Examples help us substantially when we come to difficult matters. Uh, again, I think I've mentioned this before, but I really enjoy examples. Uh, imagine you're putting together a puzzle. It's a thousand-piece puzzle. All right, so a pretty substantially sized puzzle. What's step number one? Now, for you, maybe put the, put the pieces around the corner. Step number one for me is look at the box, <laughs> right? Because I want to see what this thing's supposed to look like when I'm done. And I know that some of you are puzzle enthusiasts, and you throw the box away because you just don't even want to cheat. And uh, that's just not me. I like the example. I like to be able to look at it and say, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. That's what I, and you know what? That's what Jesus does for us. He came and became incarnate to leave us an example. It's not merely that Jesus had to come in order to die for our sins. That's true. And that's the gospel. That we were so sinful that we could not bear our own sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. The perfect man died for imperfect people. That's true. But there's a secondary reason, and it's expressed within this passage that Jesus came. He didn't just come to die for our sins, but he came to give us an example of a life that would please God. A tangible example in which we could say, that's what it looks like to live faithfully to God. And if we ask the question, is it possible to live in this life a faithful life to God. I mean, it's such a sinful world. There's so many temptations, all these sorts of things. Is it possible to live righteously? You know, we've been given an answer to that. It's Jesus himself. He's given to us an example that we would follow in his footsteps. And so if we are to think about what should be going on in our minds, how should we think and how should we act? The answer to all those questions is going to be, how did Jesus think? How did Jesus ask, act? So we need to do this because Jesus left us an example. There's, a re there's another reason. And in fact, uh, let me just actually mention Matthew 16 as well. Remember when Jesus was here, he said, if anyone would come after me, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And I think there he's indicating, follow my pattern of life. Live the way that I have lived. So the first 
point. Why should we think like Jesus? Because he became enfleshed in order that he could give us an example. This is how we ought to live. But there's a second reason. And he tells us uh, that it's because by doing so, we live up to our identity. By thinking like Jesus, we are being who we were created to be. In, uh, in the passage here in 1 Peter chapter uh, 4, notice what he says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And then notice this next phrase. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You ever read that phrase before and been confused as to what it means? Because it seems to some degree that I've suffered in the flesh but have I ceased from sin? So what does Peter mean by this? Those who suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin. And when we understand that, we'll understand why I'm saying that when we think like Jesus, we're true, being true to who we are in Christ. And the reason that it is, is because when we recognize what he's saying, he's not saying through suffering, we stop sinning. I think this is the immediate way we initially read the passage. Like if we suffer then after suffering, we will stop sinning. But I think he's actually saying something quite different. He, he says to us uh, in point two there, we stop sinning, so we suffer. And our suffering demonstrates that we are through with sin. Coming back to the passage that I just skipped a second ago, notice this is the CSB translation of the passage we have here. It says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same way of understanding, the same way of thinking. And then notice this, this uh, dashed phrase. Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. The one who suffers in the flesh shows by means of their suffering in the flesh that they actually are finished with sin. They're through with sin. Coming back to, to this example, what Peter's saying is that when we stop sinning, that is, when we embrace Christ and are transformed by his spirit, so that we no longer act like the world, guess what happens? The world doesn't respond kindly to that. This goes back to chapter 3. We read, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And we think, well, nobody. And yet, he says, actually, they will. They'll harm you for just seeking to do good. And so here what he's saying is, when we stop sinning, we suffer. And when we suffer, we demonstrate that we are the sorts of people who are through with sin. Uh, maybe if I could give an analogy to help us understand this. If somebody came and said, listen, I stopped eating two months ago. All right? So somebody says they stopped eating two months ago and they look just healthy. They're, you know, maybe a few pounds overweight and you've known them for years and they've always looked like this. And they say, yeah, yeah, I'm done with eating. I just stopped a couple of months ago. What would you say? Say, uh, I don't think you're done with eating. So, something is fishy here and uh, you're, you're clearly eating. But if somebody said to you, well, I've stopped eating, and you look at them, and they're dangerously thin, they're emaciated, their, their skin is basically falling off. I mean, they're, they're, 
they're dying in the very presence of you from not having sufficient amounts of food, then you see, they demonstrate by being dangerously thin that in fact, they were through with eating. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that that's what God's calling you to, but I'm suggesting that this is the sort of pattern he's saying. But notice it then. Notice, because I think this is important. What Peter's saying is, the one who's done with sin suffers and by means of suffering shows that he's through with sin. But what he's then suggesting is that the connection between being done with sin and suffering is so close that if you suffer, then it shows that you're done with sin. And I think this just goes to show that Peter and Paul are on the same page when Paul says, in uh, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer some form of persecution. And when Peter comes, what he's saying is this. Here's the reason you ought to think like Christ. Because just like Christ, every single one of us who are trying to follow in his path are through with sin. We demonstrate by means of the suffering that we endure that we are no longer under the evil influence of sin. So, we should think like Jesus. In doing so, we'll no longer live for human passions, is what he tells us in this passage. So, if we're thinking like Jesus, and that's what this passage is telling us to do, the next question we have to ask is, why think like Jesus? We've answered that. How can we think like Jesus? How can we think like Jesus? And, and Peter's going to give us a couple of ways. First, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin. Notice again in chapter 4, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's what we were saying. When we, when we cease from sin, we suffer. And that demonstrates that we're following the example of Christ. But notice verse 2. So as we think like Christ, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, no longer for the things that this world says, but for the very will of God. How can we think like Jesus? We must consider ourselves dead to sin. When Jesus lived in this life, was he subject to human passions? Yes. Was he subject to the exact same human passions that we have? The answer to that is yes, because the scripture tells us that he was tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. And yet, did he give in to any of those temptations? The text tells us he was without sin. Now you'll notice this passage says, we need to think like Jesus so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We're no longer living for the human passions because just as Jesus didn't live for them, we won't live for them either. And then he lists what these human passions are in verse 3. And I want you to notice because I've got a feeling that what we're going to discover is that this list of things, this list of vices, the sins that he says should not be associated with believers are the things that our world longs for, that the human passions so naturally leads after. He says in verse 3, the time that surpassed 
suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And here's what the Gentiles want to do. The Gentiles, by the way, are those who have not yet embraced Christ. He says, living in sensuality. That simply means they do whatever the body tells them to do. The the senses lead everything that they seek to do. Living in their passions. Notice drunkenness. Does our world glorify drunkenness? This escape from the, the pressures and the, and, and the world in which we're in so we can escape to, a, to our own place. Yes, drunkenness. Orgies. Orgies, the, the fulfillment of whatever sexual desire that one might have. Drinking parties. Lawless idolatry. That final one is probably a, a significant element in Peter's context. Obviously, we don't have nearly as much in, in terms of that in, in within our own personal context. But I think what he's saying is, listen, the Gentiles, this is what they, they, they seek after. But if you're going to think like Jesus, then you have to consider yourself dead to sin. Do you remember in Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about being dead to sin. And he says, should we continue in sin that great grace might abound? Because he's just said, to the degree that we sin is the degree to which God's grace multiplies. And he says, so can we continue in sin that grace might abound? And do you know what, Peter, you know what Paul's answer is in that context? He says, may it never be. And then notice this. How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Do you see what he did there? He didn't say, he didn't say, well, no, we shouldn't do that. And, and you should feel bad about trying to do that sort of thing. You should, uh, you should feel guilty and just not do that. No, you know what he says? He says, actually, no, you should not continue in sin that grace may abound. And frankly, the reason you shouldn't do that is because that's not who you are. How could you, who died to sin, live like this anymore? So, if we look back to Jesus and we say, how did Jesus live? He lived as one who is dead to these things. He was dead to these things. He did not desire them. He put them aside. There, is there a sense, though, in which there is a certain extent to which the human passions may have pulled just like all of us? Yes, I think so. But he said in, every, in the face of every temptation, that is not worth it. We're going to get to why he said that in just a bit. But if we're going to think like Jesus, then we have to consider ourselves dead to sin because that is exactly what he did. He considered himself dead to sin. How can we think like Jesus? Second, consider yourself alive to God. Notice again in verse 2, to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but, then notice this, for the will of God. What are you alive for? If you've embraced Christ, you've come to believe in him, what are you alive for? You know, Paul answers this question for us. He tells us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. Have you been bought by Christ? Have your sins been forgiven by means of the cross of Christ? If so, what the scriptures teach us is that you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed is purchase language. Do you know how scripture portrays mankind? That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved. And the only goal, the only direction in which we were headed was full condemnation. But when Jesus died, he paid a ransom price for all who would trust in Christ, all who would repent of their sins and believe. It's a free, free offer for all who would, who would repent and believe. But if we take that offer, it means that we are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. And one of the things that Jesus, and, and this sounds odd to us, but, but get it. One of the things that Jesus thought when he walked this earth was, I am not my own. Now, of course, he wasn't bought with a price in the, in the sense of being bought by the blood, by his own blood. But you realize that when Jesus was on this earth, he did not consider his life his own. If he did, then remember that moment he's in the garden and he's praying to his father. What does he say? Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. Do you see what Jesus did not want to do? There was a significant element of his human nature that did not want to go to the cross, and understandably so, correct? Would any of us want to go to the cross? Clearly not, just the physical torture. But beyond that, the experience of uh, whatever happened to him on the cross in relationship with his father, it, it was deeply disturbing to him as he considered that future. And yet he went. Why? Because he said to his father, my life is not my own. I'm submissive to you. If we are going to think like Jesus, then what that means is that we must willingly submit to his will for our lives. I want you to notice, though, that this is coming in, the, in reference to a passage we just talked about. Remember 318 to 22, the passage we looked at last week. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. And now he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, then you think the same way. I think Peter's point is this. Because again, remember, his audience is going through great suffering, great trial for Christ. And he's saying, look, Jesus went through suffering. And you likely will have to go through suffering as well. So when we say, Lord, my life is not my own, do you know what we're opening ourselves to? Trial, difficulty, suffering. It very well may be, and this is a point that Peter's made numerous times, it very well may be God's will for your life wouldn't be the matching element to what you would will for your life. And there are times where God's people have conquered kingdoms according to Hebrews chapter 11. And there are times where God's people have been sawn asunder, according to Hebrews chapter 11. And do you know the difference between those two people? It's not that one had faith and the other didn't. It's that 
They were both running the race that was set before them. If you're going to think like Jesus, if you're going to arm yourself with the mental toughness that he displayed, then you have to think two things. You've got to think, I am dead to sin. That is not, that's not who I am. I don't live that way. I'm not going to give in to the passions of this flesh because that isn't who I am. And second, we have to consider ourselves, consider ourselves alive to God. I am living for the will of God, not for the will of Tim, but for the will of God. But I think there's a third reason or a third way in which we think like Jesus. How can we think like Jesus? We can think like Jesus by considering our future and not our past. Consider our future and not our past. Notice the passage actually distinguishes between two phases of our life. He says this in verse 2. We suffer in the flesh or we follow, we think like Christ so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you see, Peter is highlighting that when you come to conversion, there's, there's a point. And that there's a turning point. There's a changed point. You know, if, if people ask me, Tim, who were you? And they ask me to detail a history of my life. There's a stage that comes in my early 20s that I could not tell the story of my life without telling that point. See, because it's at the age of 20 that I came to faith in Christ. And I would simply say this. The previous to that point, Tim, is not the same person as post that point, Tim. I was changed. I was made a new person. Do you see, in this passage, it's saying the time that is past is sufficient to do what the Gentiles want to do. The idea here is it's already filled up. The lust of the passion, the lust of the flesh, it's already filled up in your past. So leave that behind and move forward. In this, we need to consider our future, not our past. And I actually think when we look at the language, it even suggests to us that believers should recognize that the way of our past is insufficient. The way of our past is insufficient because he says the things that are past suffices for, or the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, we lived in those at one time. And do you know what we found them to be? Empty. Vain. Fruitless. Our world, when I read a list of things like this, do you want to go to a drinking party where there's drunkenness and orgies and the fulfillment of all sensuality and passions? What does our world widely say? That sounds awesome. Where do I get that? I mean, if you want to grow your college campus, just say these are the things you'll get during college. You realize that there are colleges just known for their party scene where these sorts of things take place. This is what mankind generally seeks after. But here's the question. Are those things satisfying? It's, it's fascinating to me that our human passions are 
fallen desires. And that's exactly what they are. They're fallen desires. The scripture calls them deceptive. They deceive us. Because we are convinced that that is the right way. It's like being let loose. Letting uh, all the kids loose in a candy store. And yet the candy store is filled with poison. And this is, this is the natural desire of the human heart. And, and yet, what the passage here highlights for us is that the time is sufficient for having done that. Can't we look back and say those things that yes, my heart to some degree still is pulled after because I'm still human in this flesh. That those things are insufficient, that they are deceptive, and that they will not satisfy You see, this is what Jesus knew, not from an experiential standpoint like many of us know, but from a knowledge of God, his father. The father denies no good thing from his children, but he denies to them all sorts of things that are ultimately destructive to them. And he says, abandon these ways and instead give yourself to the father. You know what I think Jesus ultimately did? And here's what I think Peter is trying to get us to think. He says, think like Jesus. Be mentally tough like Jesus. And here's what Jesus thought. Here's how we can think like Jesus. I must consider myself dead to the passions that naturally arise within my heart. I can't go that way. And I must consider myself alive to God because, and I think this comes from the broad context, it will be worth it in the end. Because remember, he says, since Christ suffered this way in the flesh, arm yourselves in the way of thinking. And if we go back to the previous context, what happened to Jesus? Yes, he suffered deeply in the faith, in, in the, as he lived out the faithful life. But remember again, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father with all angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. And so here's the critical thing that we must think. We must forget the past, look forward to the future, and ask the question, Lord, if I live for your will, what will happen? And if I don't live for your will, what will happen? Now we're going to see that much more strikingly at the end of chapter 4, but that's what he's beginning to get us to think about. And the answer is quite clear. If we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then we will get a reward like Jesus got. Now, of course, we can't get Jesus' reward because he was the faithful son. But we will get a reward like Jesus got. Do you know, we're not the only ones called to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Even people before Jesus were called to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And we know this because of a guy named Moses. And if I could summarize what it is to think like Jesus and to live with this mental toughness, I think Moses was the one. Do you remember Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household? He knew the pleasures that the world could offer him to the highest degree in his day. And yet this is what he said. Or this is what is said of him In this statement of faith. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Rather 
than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I want to pause there. Is sin pleasurable? Well, notice the passage just told us the answer to that is yes. And yet, is it satisfying? Notice again, the the answer to the question is right here in this passage. The fleeting pleasures of sin. They don't last. They won't satisfy. And here's what Moses did as he was thinking the way that Jesus thought. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. Do you know there was no one in probably any position in the ancient world in Moses' day who could have benefited and valued from just simply going back to the Egyptians and living the sinful lifestyle, he could have gotten it all. And many scholars believe that he might have been the next in line for the throne. And here, what does he do? He abandons all the pleasures of sin because he sees a fact. He sees something. He sees that the pleasures of this world are fleeting. They're minor. They cannot satisfy. But the things that are coming in the life to come are worth even the abandonment of everything in this life. And it's worth the suffering with the people of God. And so here we are. Jesus has not promised you an easy life. To some degree, he's actually promised the opposite. He said that if you live godly, then you're going to have face persecution. You're going to face difficulty. And the question sometimes we're asking ourselves is, is it worth it? How do I live like this? And Jesus walked it before us. Do you know what he did? He didn't look at what he could get in this life. He looked at what his father had reserved for him. And here's how we too do the same thing. Follow Jesus. And Moses was following Jesus. Moses too looked at the things he could have in this world and said, it's not worth it. Because of what's to come. And now here we're walking. And let me ask you the question. Do you want the things this world can offer you? Oh, the time that has passed suffices for doing those things. You know better than that. That's not who you are in Christ. Or will you embrace the things that God has reserved for you? You may not see it today. The book of Hebrews says it has to be seen with the eyes of faith. But put on those spectacles that God's given to us. The spectacles of faith. And recognize that the fleeting pleasures of sin have nothing to be compared to the reward that he has reserved for you. So prepare for the battle. And when this week you're faced with the temptation to give in to the passions of the flesh. Say, ha ha, not I. Not today. I will not give in to this. Because I've got something better. Something God has reserved for me. Father, I pray that you would help each of us to be faithful to you. Lord, each of us are faced with the difficulty of of desires in our body and, and in our sinfulness that lead us astray. 
We thank you for the testimony of your son, for the testimony of Moses, for the testimony of other believers who have showed us that the fleeting pleasures of sin are nothing to be compared to the glories that will be revealed to us and in us. So Father, help us to hold on. And this week, to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.